0: Our topic today
1: uh, kind of folds in two things, I think, and I'll try to bring that up in a question, is what's more important in an organization, Uh, to address a crisis in leadership or a culture that allows that leadership crisis to take place? Are they both related? Can you do one without the other? And how do you create an environment that enables those within it to innovate, to improve, and to change not just themselves, but the organization they serve. In the military, it's an organization that more often than not, it prizes a type A personality. It needs the risk taker. It needs a strong intellect. But almost in opposite to that, it demands silence. It demands order. It demands compliance. And it demands often for those strong type A personalities to do things that they greatly disagree with. So when that takes place, where is that proper, where is that improper, and are we taking full advantage of the type of personality set that we say we really want in this line of work? And our guest to discuss for the full hour will be Peter Munson. He's a Marine officer, KC-130 aircraft commander. He's a Middle East specialist, blogger. He's also author of the book, Iraq in Transition, The Legacy of Dictatorship and the Prospects for Democracy. And he is also editor over at Small Wars Journal. And we're going to use an article of his that came out in Small Wars Journal back in April titled Disruptive Thinkers Defining the Problem. In a response to Lieutenant Benjamin Coleman's essay, The Military Needs More Disruptive Thinkers. And if you haven't read those, you can all find links for them over at the show page, or you can go over to Small Wars Journal and search them up for yourself. Uh, but until then, Peter, welcome to MidRats.
2: Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, greatly appreciate the offer to to be able to talk about this.
1: Well it's uh it's uh, a topic that has really gotten a lot of interest by our, our regular listeners and also some people that may be new to the program that have been touched with us on a variety of ways. And I wanted to kick things off, Peter, uh <laughs> quoting from your article here, because I think you, you rounded out the the question really well and you know, over the last, you know, six to eight weeks or so, maybe you have a, a different view on it. But in the earlier part of your essay, Disruptive Thinkers Defining the Problem, uh, you quoted one of your commenters, Noel old hypothesis, who said, you know, what you're really looking at is what is the problem we are trying to solve again? And you say, you know, that is the right question. And if we have disruptive thinkers, what are they trying to disrupt?
2: Okay. Um, I think I'd just like to start uh with talking about w- what exactly are we trying to get at with disruptive thinkers. And you know, the, the catchphrase uh I think comes from uh you know, I haven't I haven't exhaustively researched this, but I think, you know, it's been around in different circles or in, in different formats, uh, on the business side and uh, you know, science side. Um, but Ben Coleman used it uh in his uh his article with uh, Small Works Journal, um in this context first. Uh, and there's been some criticism of that because, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, say that it, it detracts from, you know, the uh, the reform message because the, the, the disruptive catchphrase, um, you know, makes people in a somewhat risk-averse uh, bureaucracy a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit worried uh, and, and makes them want to resist that. And so, you know, I, I think that the reason why he used uh, disruptive thinkers, and why i I kind of try to make it a tagline and, a tagline at Small War's Journal is because yeah, it does shake up the culture it does it is a little bit shocking, you know it's marketing honestly if uh we published an article that said um, the military needs innovative thinkers <clears throat> or something like that, everyone would be like, "Well yeah, no kidding but uh and and uh so is it marketing Yes, it's marketing, but I think what it is is that there's a there's a problem. That everyone recognizes because there's been a plethora of articles out there talking about innovation and reform and yada yada yada, but uh, nothing really happens. And so, it, you know, I think it's an attempt to try to um, you know shake the bureaucracy a little bit and, and get uh, get it to pay attention.
3: Um,
2: and in my own uh, writing previously to this, uh, I wrote uh, I've written a couple articles at the Marine Corps uh, Gazette. And in one article, um, actually a letter to the editor, I uh, stated that uh, they have an advertisement that said that the Marine Corps Gazette is read by every general officer. And I, I wrote, well, I think that that needs to be changed. That you know, every general officer has a subscription because they must not be reading, because otherwise they surely would either comment, uh, uh, let us know why we we are missing something, or they would, you know, they would do something about the things that the uh, you know this middle management level is, is talking about. And uh, Lieutenant General Robert Nettler, who is currently Director of Operations uh, on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he's actually going to be coming down to my neck of the woods at Marsent, um here soon, uh, he, he, as he said, took the bait, and uh, in a series of back and forth between uh, him and, and some other folks at the Marine Corps, he said, has called us the Young Turks. Um, and in all of these... Uh, back and forth. Uh I think that there's there's a little bit of a on the side of the middle management there's a little bit of an overstatement of the problem, a little bit of uh you know attempt to jar the system. Uh and on the other side, uh kind of the guardians of the system, and institutional leadership, uh those of uh those who do actually Roger up or you know make comments uh a lot of times this the disruptive thinkers or a call for innovation,
4: innovation,
2: a call for reform is it's uh, kind of attacked with a you know straw man arguments saying well you guys just want to have nothing but resources thrown at you and no accountability or um you expect to be able to come in as a first lieutenant and uh you know to not have to listen to orders and just innovate and go off on your own and do whatever you want um, and I think that's absolutely not the case, at least what most, I, I think, the responsible voices are arguing for. It's really, and and uh, getting back to your, uh, the way you split it into to two possible categories, is this a, a crisis of leadership that we have to deal with um, by going after the leadership uh, aspect of it, or is it, a, is it, do we need to go after the culture that allows it. I really do think it's the culture that we need to, to get at. And, and, um it's really, I think, the culture that the disruptive thinkers and other similar arguments, include the attritionist letters and the Marine Corps Gazette, include uh, some of the stuff that I've written there and at my own blog,
3: um,
2: and just a kind of a, a really around the you know the defense um, uh, literature, things like Colonel Paul Yingling. It's
4: a, it's an issue of <clears throat> the
2: culture um, that needs to be changed so that the leadership can be changed because really the the leaders are 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 bred born and brewed in that in that culture, and uh if you don't change the culture, you can just try to change out leaders um and, and you're never going to get to the the result you want to
4: well, that opens up a lot of areas for discussion um, let's talk about changing the culture i mean what I I I guess my assumption is that that one of the theories behind the way things are now is that many of the more senior officers have been co-opted into a into a system that that ignores um the the present realities and that the function one function of disruptive thinking is to uh uh give them some ground truth as to way things uh look from the from as you say the middle management or the lower um Management area is, is it? Am I off base in thinking that way? Uh, well,
2: I think that, uh, that I don't think you're off base in thinking that way. But you know, I want to be careful because another one of the straw, argue, straw man arguments that's been thrown up against this this line of thinking is that we think that we know better than everybody else. We being the younger generation, and uh, and really. A, a, people try to say that you know, we're so inexperienced that we don't even know what we're arguing about, um, that we have a very simplistic view of the world, um, and, and that we're trying to tell people for 30-plus years of experience the way things are when, when we don't get it ourselves. And so um, a couple quick points on that. One, you know, a lot of the people who are writing these things are, are not quite as inexperienced uh as, as some of the commenters would, would lead you to believe, um, you know, it it has, it's a bit of a minefield because, you know, if I say that I have 15 years of experience in the, in the institution, then, you know, some people would say, well, that's a lot and others would say it's not that much, but, uh, there's people like myself who are, um, you know, I've, I've already passed my, uh, 04 level, um, basically MOS tour. I've, I've, Worked at that level. We've got others who are, um, you know, commanding officers at the battalion level who who um, feel the same way. We've got others at the O6 level who who um, are also making some of these arguments. At least, if not out in the open, then uh, well, you know, you have Paul Yingling and Colonel John Gentile who are making these out in the open. But there's plenty of others who are just who are in contact with people like me
4: who who say that yes,
2: we're on the right path. Um and you know, even into the general officer levels, uh Lieutenant General Miller didn't exactly agree with us but he didn't exactly say that we were wrong either. So I do think that there is um there's a difference in perception of what's going on in, in the institution between the lower and mid levels and the highest levels of the uh institution. <clears throat> but I think more importantly that uh this is something that is it's not isolated with defense bureaucracy or the U.S. military, this is something that can be expected as uh you know, as a bureaucracy kind of gets to a point where it's been very protected. It hasn't had uh, basically to fight for its life, whether economically or militarily uh, for some time. And it's, it's kind of on top of a heap, you know, the, the bureaucracy tends to get bloated. It, it tends to be problems uh, and in dysfunction and uh really a lot of inefficiencies in, in the bureaucracy. And some of the things that I've written about try to highlight that uh I guess comparison between say the DOD and you know HP or a Xerox uh you know that, that was near the end of its you know its uh, plain paper copying uh monopoly which I guess. Yeah I I just wanted
1: to to double down on something you said. I think one of the – you talk about anti-intellectualism. The people, that the first thing they do is come out and take out the calendar and say, well, I have this many more years than you, therefore my argument wins. Uh, that's that's just a classic defensive of not really wanting to address the issue. And, and I thought um, – and usually when people do that, I just tune them off because they don't know what they're doing. Uh, when I was reading Benjamin Coleman's um, article, I was reminded uh, back my first – First real shore duty job back in the mid to late 90s. Um, a little gaggle that I was with that had some really really sharp individuals, and one of them actually got out and uh, got his MBA from Harvard. But uh, by the end of the 90s, besides me and one other guy, this group of of 10 people, you know, pre-internet, uh, they're all gone. They all got out of the service. And I've I've heard some of what you know you've heard as well, where where people are kind of reacting to this in, in a less than productive way, where they weigh in on the argument as if this is a criticism or a challenge to senior leadership. I kind of see it exactly the opposite. I see it almost a plea for senior leadership to to do what needs to be done to address some very real problems that I think uh, those who are closest to it, which are those uh, who have gotten through their first duty, you have that time to reflect because they're fully qualified and they actually have some more operational experience. And you have guys like you that may only have 15 years in, but you've probably uh, worked more with Marines uh, in the, the way a Marine officer could in the last 15 years. A lot of these guys have in 30, and that's operationally. Uh, do you see that as well, that it's not so much of a, a challenge of leadership of a bunch of young Turks complaining, but almost a plea for the good senior leaders we have there to come to the fore and come out into the open?
3: Uh,
2: I think absolutely it's a plea. Uh, and as a matter of fact, that's why some of the calls have gotten a little bit more strident, uh, I guess you could say, is because we're trying to trying to get a response, um, trying to create a dialogue um, whereby the senior leadership comes out and Either says, "Hey, this is what you're missing," or we hear you. We're working on it. You know, here's what we've done, and here's what we're going to do. Um, so that's on the one hand. And on the other hand, it, at least in in my um, the things that I've been writing uh, and, and you know discussing with people, it's not so much one of it's not so much an issue of tactical combat leadership, command and control. <clears throat> this is really for me more about the, the bureaucracy, uh the institutional level leadership, uh and, and the issues of just how we train equip uh train and equip our forces, how we manage our people back home, the sorts of burdens that we put on people that detract from our um you know our core missions. Uh and you know, I, I don't want to really get into this this realm here, but I would also say the way that our um our bureaucracy writ large makes strategic decisions and, um, you know, conducts uh, strategic-level operations. So I you know, have to address that issue in brief uh, in, um, for instance, in Foreign Policy Magazine. But really it's about how the bureaucracy makes decisions, allocates resources, and most importantly, prioritizes the efforts of the people that are working for you. So, you know, is it uh, if I'm working at a given geographic uh, combatant command, is it more important for me to focus on those things which support the warfighter or is it more important for me to do uh, firefighter or fire extinguisher uh, training on the computer? And that is a choice that people are forced to make because there are no priorities given and there's just a list of you have to do all of this. And, by the way, there's not enough time in the day. when people start to make up their own priorities, which are not always consistent with... Uh,
1: you know, mission accomplishment. Eagle one, Eagle one, going once, going twice. Ah, well, we all live in the southeast, Somebody got to, wait, wait, did he dial back in? Eagle one, is that you? Yeah, I'm here. There we go. A little technical you difficulty. I mean? My apologies. Well, yeah, I'm we got sorry. this. Your question.
4: Yeah, my my question is uh, has to do with whether. Um, we've gone a long way toward making it sounds like the, the military friendly as we can you know and a, and a complaint i had when i was a junior officer and i'm sure <laughs> one that continues today that that the the uh, the, the customer and this of the bureaucracy, the junior officer the the uh, middle man and we've done everything we can to make their job as hard as possible while making it easier for the for the bureaucracy uh to operate um is some of the effort that you see going on with this with this uh, process of of communication uh devoted to that uh, that that kind of issue
2: okay i uh i missed a little bit of that i'm not sure if it was uh, my end or your end but uh um my understanding was that you were asking if the um if the, if the bureaucracy has basically made uh, life easier for itself and made and put more transfer more burdens onto the uh, the lower level operators, is that correct? That's correct. Well, um, in a way, I, I do think that that's correct. Uh, a lot of the things that you'll you'll see complaints about is kind of the tyranny of of uh, higher headquarters, uh, the higher headquarters' ability to reach farther and farther down into the um, into the tactical level weeds. And, and, you know, this is true uh, both in combat operations and back at home station. Um, you know, so you can see, uh, of course, you can see people anywhere around the world looking over the shoulder of a uh, fire team leader via Predator uh, live feed. You can also see higher headquarters wanting to know which Lance Corporal's done his motorcycle training and which uh, Lance Corporal has not
3: and
0: uh I, I
2: can see uh i can see reasons why uh at some t- at some points in time this is appropriate uh you know certain levels of uh i guess intrusive leadership can be appropriate at, at certain times but it has become so easy for the higher levels to reach down um that there's this this appetite this demand for information to come up the chain uh and it's just assumed that it's so easy to put that together maybe it's not assumed but the the demand is there for us to put this information together that we spend more time reporting statistics up the chain than we do get uh in getting feedback back from you know the higher levels and almost more time reporting than actually doing the things that uh that we should be reporting on you know actually conducting these tactical level tasks whether it's you know actual combat or Uh, garrison issues. So there's been a lot, there's a a profusion of data systems out there, there's a profusion of data calls out there, and there hasn't, again, been a move to really examine how much time and how much of a burden those things are placing on uh, the lower level of the institution and how to rationalize uh, these things. Um, And I guess one, one more point on that is that you know, with these different data systems that are coming out, individually, a lot of them are meant to make life easier for the lower-level commands. If you
3: pour all this data
2: into the system, it's going to populate all these reports for you. But what the institution doesn't do is, uh, or what what ends up happening is that we'll have have two or three different data systems that we have to put different sets of data into um, that, you know, so instead of rationalizing, it, it ends up, multiplying, and then uh, we still get a demand for certain kinds of reports um, that we manually enter, and, you know, and because the institution hasn't caught up to the data systems that it's, it's created. So, for instance, if we're doing computer-based training, there's now systems where all of the, the certificates get, you know, are, are electronically available, and all the statistics can go up through, the, um, through that, that uh, electronic system. to to give numbers to higher headquarters. However, you still got a clerk having us print off all of our certificates, fill out the Excel spreadsheet, and send it up the chain in addition to this new electronic reporting system. So, again, the bureaucracy needs to rationalize and prioritize
4: our efforts, I think.
1: That's a perfect lead-in to another ball I wanted to tee up for you that I thought you, you addressed real well in your article, because I think it's underappreciated. And we we had an interesting statistic pop out a while ago, um, maybe a, a topic for a different show, uh, about the, the ratio of uh, non-operational naval officers versus operational naval officers uh, with regard to their designator and their numbers. I think the Marine Corps is a lot better than we are. But one thing we've all seen, and even though we've heard people rail against it, but it's gotten worse, that is staff bloat in both size and number of staffs. You look at what a staff was 15 years ago, 20 years ago with less technology, you would think with technology, you would have fewer people on the staff. That's not true. And then we have multiple layers of bureaucracy doing the, you know, the classic staff weenie bleat of, I need to chop the chop of the chop. And, there's something about that that I think in the culture within these multiple layers of staffs that goes against one of my favorite uh, phrases is creative friction, that you need opposition, you need argument, you need disagreement because it's only through that aggressive exchange of ideas in the open preferably you can get closer to the solution. But we have a habit in staffs of socializing proposal in order to get a buy-in from everybody else before you actually go forward with a concept, so there is no creative friction, if you could please talk a little bit about your thoughts about that buy in concept and how the solution is provided at the beginning
2: okay uh that's a great uh that's a great question set and uh honestly there's so many things I want to say about this but i'm not I'm not sure where to start so uh, your point about the uh the prolific- of non operational uh uh you know non operational to operational and the way the staffs are growing. You know uh General Zinni spoke of this as the uh you know the self-licking ice cream cone. And uh in you know well, one of my blog posts I I called um yeah I related it to Gordon Gecko from Wall Street. When he goes to uh tell our paper and uh uh, we got a hot mic or is that my phone? Okay, that's better. I don't know if that was yeah, of
1: that.
2: Okay. So uh, relating it to, to Gordon Gekko, uh, uh from Wall Street, uh, the movie Wall Street, and he goes into tell our paper and he says, you know, we've got 30 vice presidents and I've been studying this, this company for, whatever, six months, and I can't figure out what they do except for send memos from one, you know, one guy to the next. And so again, it highlights that it's, this is not some evil uh, facet of military bureaucracy. This is what happens in corporations, organizations that you know have basically have been in a position where they haven't had a clean house.
3: Um,
2: they've been in a you know in a resource advantaged position. And uh, there's a book uh, by Richard Rommelt, I believe I'm getting the name right. Um, called good strategy bad strategy, and he speaks to different case studies of how uh you know how this happens in different uh, bureaucracies and you know if if you don 't have some sort of you know uh, wildfire that comes through and clears out the underbrush, that stuff starts to choke off growth you know in the corporate world there's you know the business cycle tends to um, tends to take care of that either either companies periodically have to uh, reform, reset, let people go, and kind of uh, streamline themselves down, or they're going to end up going out of business. In the Department of Defense, it's a different animal uh, because it doesn't have that those same competitive pressures. Um, yes, we, we're at war, but, you know, we're not sending battalion against battalion, division against division, where,
3: um,
2: you know, like you saw in World War II, you would have, uh, you know, several layers of leadership fired or killed until you get to the point where, um, you know, the organization is working optimally. Obviously, I'm not, you know, wishing for that sort of thing, but if you're not, if you don't have that sort of dynamic occurring naturally, then you need to start looking for how do we basically start to clear out this, this, you know, undergrowth of staff uh, uh, proliferation, um, that's really tending to make the bureaucracy very inefficient.
3: Um
2: i got a couple notes that I wrote down as you were talking. I'll just hit a couple of them real briefly before I go on to, um, I guess, discuss why I think this is important. Um, first off, you mentioned how the, the Navy has uh, maybe more, more non-operational to operational um, officer billets, but, you know, the Marine Corps has been using individual augments. I know all the services have, but, you know, we think growing our staffs by, um, you know, basically robbing out of our operational units to to, to send people on augment tours to those staff. So, you know, we're all seeing it, and in, in the Marine Corps, it's, I think, particularly harmful. Uh, you know, I, there's a certain level at which there's room for that sort of augmentation and there's need for it. But once you go past the,
3: um,
2: hey, we're at, on a wartime footing, we need to increase our staffs a little bit to the um, staff bloat. Um, you're really creating a harmful situation. And another example of that that I saw from uh, walking around the halls of CENTCOM is that there's a tasker cell in the J-5. And so, you know, my understanding of that is that there's basically an office with several people in it whose sole job is to keep track of all the tasks that everyone is supposed to be doing. So, I mean, these things are so... You can see that, you know, again, the self licking ice cream cone. And so when, when you get this profusion of, of different interests in a bureaucracy, that's where you, you get that need for buy in. And so, you know, everybody is defending their interest. Um and, and it it might not it's not necessarily a you know that people are are being purposely nefarious. It's that's the nature of the bureaucracy. You think the job that you're doing is important. So therefore you think you need more resources to do it well. Um and if you don't have someone to rationalize and prioritize you you get all these people competing um uh to to protect their piece of the pie and um, as that goes on, everyone starts to you know basically log roll where they're you know w- as decisions get passed around through the system through different sorts of uh um means of routing it, every decision gets watered down to get that buy in to the point where it's not a decision at all, and again that's where we lead to these. Get to the situation where we're at, where there's there is no prioritization of time, investment, resources, etc., because of this, you know, this basically set of you know interest groups gone
4: wild. Well, I guess one of the questions then is how do you select if you're gonna if you're gonna weed things out in the business world? You can do it on the basis of productivity or. Uh, you know income generator or a whole bunch of other- um, at, uh means of measuring performance I mean that would be great, but they're they're at least uh, uh methods of doing so now we use a fitness report system that I think is broken, and we and so everybody is above average and uh, uh how are we gonna get how are we gonna weed out the people who are uh just holding their position hoping for the retirement check, and how are we gonna keep people who are who are dynamic? Uh, disruptive thinkers to move us forward how how does that how does that work
2: well you know that's the multi-million dollar question that I don't necessarily have the uh, you know the silver bullet answer for but there's there's two different answers to how do you select how do you how do you go about figuring out you know who's the right people who are the right people to keep around and, and what organizations and organizational methods are the right ones to keep around and you hit on, you know, the, the bottom line um, in, in your question is that there there are no metrics. So we we talk about metrics, we try to create metrics, but um, there really are no metrics uh, in the Department of Defense right now that, that can truly um, basically rationalize our system. We don't have a customer, and you can argue different um, – you, you can argue for different people who are customers, but really – when you come down to it, there, there's no one who's going to be able to walk away and not buy our product um, in the end game. So we don't have a customer. Um, you know, our budget is fixed, and the system for, um, you know, the system for allocating resources to the Department of Defense is not a rational system. So therefore, um, it's not going to it's going to not going to choke out inefficiencies. Uh, again, we're not in existential battle where um, there's a metric of, are you winning or losing against a pure competitor? And there's not the threat of that nearby. So that's another, uh, I guess, influence that could drive a more rational performance that, that we're missing. And uh, as far as you know, the, some of the personnel policies that we have go, there's no payroll tax. There's no um, you know, you, you don't have to worry about your payroll, so you can be as inefficient with your manpower as uh, as you want to be, and, and there's nothing to rationalize that. So if we're, you know, if we're keeping people, um, you know, having people work for 40 hours a week or 80 hours a week, or if we've got people there 40 hours a week and they're not doing anything for us, there's no one, you know, there's there's no sort of payroll cost or overtime cost for the majority of the Department of Defense that's going to make you use your people more intelligently. So these are all things that, that make, I think, leadership and culture that more important to fixing the problems that we see. But I'm not really that, um, optimistic that, you know, that a, a answer or a solution is going to materialize. Um, so as, <clears throat> as far as how do we select the right people to stay around, um, again, there's a, there's a lot of literature out there on different ways that we can move ahead. Um, whether that's, uh, you know, a lot of this is tied up in the in the laws of, for military compensation, the laws for military promotion and selection, and I'm not an expert on those by any means, but I, it's not as simple as just changing the way um, that we select, promote, retain, and pay people. Um, we have to go to Congress to release some of that. <clears throat> but I think that what we could do, um, you know, is, is tr- somehow try to, Make our fitness reporting system a little bit better. Um, you know, right now there's there's things like where you, you just can't you can't say anything negative about a person. Where on a Marine Corps fit rep, if I write um, this is an average captain, this is an average sergeant in a fit rep, and average comes up in the software as an adver- uh, keyword that the, the fit rep should be adverse. So we're saying that if we say someone is average, then this is a adverse fit rep, it just makes no sense
3: um people
2: have talked a lot of uh different ideas uh, how we could do three hundred sixty degree fit reps um, but really there's a lot you know there's a lot of logistical problems with how how do we um you know how to, how do we do that and how do we change the fit rep system um, so I guess I'm almost arguing against myself when i say it it's gonna have to start at the top where the people at the very top of the institution are going to have to force a sea change. So I guess it is leadership that's very important, but what they need to change is the culture. Um, And so I've got myself a little bit of circular logic here where, um, you know, how do we change the culture? Someone at the top is going to have to initiate that. Um, But in order to ensure that we have the right leadership at the top, the culture has to be changed.
1: I don't have all the answers. Let me throw you a, a life preserver here, because this, this is a perfect segue into my next question that I think you'll be able to pick up and run with, because I'm in complete agreement with you here. The the key, as it is with most things, is you've got to have the right leadership. But I think you've described real well, uh, both here and in other places, that our organization, I've, I'm, I'm a home blogger, and occasionally I'll... When I'm describing this, I put up a picture of the Janissaries if anybody wants to study what happens when a military organization ceases to be useful. Um, there are these adhesions that we have in our culture, in our leadership, how we select people, but this isn't new. I mean, uh, our military has gone through this before uh, throughout recorded military history. Other militaries have. Uh, what you need is something to break the adhesions. And, w- and one thing during a pre show discussion with a little cabal uh, I gathered up um, over at uh, Facebook we were talking about what I mentioned before what we need here is we need this is not going to be solved by existing three three stars and four stars this is going to require people in civilian suits political appointees who have a broad axe and a mandate to do something within living memory was actually done I like to go back to back in the Eisenhower era, uh, for the Chief of Naval Operations, Arlie Burke was pulled down from one star to be CNO, bypassing a couple of hundred people, I think it was, in order to break those adhesions and to, to bring in some new blood. Is that while well, we're all here looking for somebody to move here, and I don't think we have the the general officer and flag officer culture to uh, allow a Tom Connolly to self-immolate for the the sake of of his organization. But we really – is the real solution here to get the right civilian leadership in DOD that will make these adhesion-breaking movements that might have good second- and third-order effects, we can impact the culture and move towards a better construct? Well, um, I'm going to
3: have
2: to try to be – Careful here, because uh, I think that this is treading a little bit, a uh, little bit into uh, you know civil-military relations, and, and it's something that's critically important. But you know, I'm an active-duty military officer, so I, I need to be very careful, so um, and, and not cross the line of uh, you know basically. I
1: was just in general terms. Yeah. I, I, I'm not interested in, in one party or another. Just as a general concept, I wasn't trying to bring in that briar patch. I'm sorry if it sounded like it. I wasn't.
2: No, no absolutely not. It just and, and you know I, I wasn't. I wouldn't want to even go into even if I could speak freely. I wouldn't want to to go and try to partisan political finger point because I think that that's part of the problem is that um, it, it's it's on all of America's political entities that you know everyone you know uses you know, both sides use things like the military and defense decision making is a is a uh you know football to kick around and then finger point um at, you know at the other side on decisions that they themselves might have made but you know it it's it's the constant game of gotcha so that's that's an aspect of our political culture that um is definitely detrimental to fixing anything um with the federal government um but I, my my point is i just i'm i'm really thinking you know I have to think through this very carefully as i speak so
3: um
2: as far as getting the right civilian leadership in place uh i think that that is that is a- absolutely critical um and i think that that is a place where you know there there could be a um you know a shakeup that's brought by um you know brought in by kind of an outside uh, an outside party or maybe a an, an insider who's actually an outsider if you know what i mean you know someone who's a, a bit of a maverick and, and put into the right position um however the aspects of our political culture and our civil military relations right now that that work against that. One I just spoke to, which is the, you know, kind of the the gridlock. And uh, I've got another book that's coming out in January. It's called War, Welfare, and Democracy. And it speaks to how, you know, not just in the United States, but in Europe too, there's a a polarization of political culture as we also start to see somewhat of a polarization of, uh, you know, kind of the, uh, the economic structure of our country and again, this is this is one of those things that's uh, that's kind of like the the military, where uh, the you know the military uh, dysfunction that I've described. You know, as these institutions um, kind of uh, keep growing in a certain direction without any crisis to remake them, you get these the special interests that proliferate and kind of choke out the uh, rational functioning of the system you have that in the military you also have that in the you know political machinery of our government and other governments in the world so it it, it is all part of it you know different facets of a of a interrelated problem <clears throat> but as far as getting the right civilian leadership to start to um kind of take an axe to the bureaucracy uh, uh, another aspect of that is that we've had these you know this decade of war um and we've had this war where there's a small population, uh, you know, subpopulation of our of our um citizenship that's been party to this war, that's actually, you know, been been part of the war. And so our, you know, there we have very strong civilian uh, supporters out there who uh, you know, want to honor the sacrifices that are made, want to make sure that the military is getting everything that it needs to do its job. Um But at the same time, uh, I think it's created a bit of a culture of self-entitlement on the part of the military. Um, We've told ourselves for 10 years that look at all the sacrifices we've made, uh, look at what we've done, and and that really hurts our ability to have some introspection, you know, within the bureaucracy, but it also makes it incredibly difficult for someone to come in and start to take an axe to the bureaucracy because, uh, you know, those parties that, that uh, are getting axed are going to kind of wave the, uh, you know, wave the the you know the bloody shirt and say, you know, you're you're cutting something that that is going to eventually make you know people die on the battlefield. Um, there's a great parody in in the Onion about General. It's supposedly it's General Mattis, but you know it's a, it's a satire, and he's writing saying that we have to have the only way we're going to win the war is if we have a pinball machine at CENTCOM, and you know, everything that we do, um, people try to try to use that sort of logic, say we have to have X, Y, or Z program or institution in order to win the war or as the wars start to wind down, in order to prevent, you know, another war from happening. So with that civil-military relationship, with that, uh, you know, kind of culture of self-entitlement on the military's part, it's going to be very difficult for someone to to uh kind of rationally take an axe to the organization and try to chop off those parts that
4: <clears throat> kind of
2: need to to be regrown or to to go away altogether. And so my I think my my thought is that both on our on the political side, you know, writ large and then in the subset of what's going to happen with the military in the future, I don't see us rationally uh Addressing our own issues, I think it's going to take a crisis that's going to force you know drastic measures um, that will eventually you know if that's that's the wildfire that if you don't do a prescribed burn, the wildfire comes through. It it doesn't really uh, differentiate between you know between parts of the forest. It just takes it all down, and and you got to rebuild. Now I don't I don't think that the crisis will be quite that bad, but I do think that you know there may be a crisis that. That requires, you know, that really damages our finances, our our governmental institutions, and our our fiscal policy, and we have to kind of uh, rebuild after that. It, it, you know, unless we can find some way to um, to to compromise and to come up with a solution um, to stave that off, but I, I don't see that happening in the near term.
4: Let me uh, shift the focus a little bit to uh to a, a guy that I think was a disruptive thinker and that we've discussed many times here before, and we'll discuss again, especially if I get uh, general van riper back on but uh let's talk about john boyd i mean a lot of the the approach he took to things uh was not necessarily the highly recommended approach to advancement to uh to a general officer uh pay but uh, he certainly had influence is, is he uh, a factor do you think in the in the direction that this um, disruptive thinking uh, idea has taken?
2: Well, I, you know, I think he's a bit of a factor. Um, but, I, you know, I don't think it's quite, uh, you know, at least not for me. And I'm, I, I don't really think I can know enough about others' uh, ideas and motivations to speak for them. So I think he's he's definitely an influence, but not you know, we're not trying to consciously um, – Follow in his footsteps, but I mean really the important idea there, and when i went when I, the important idea there is that do you do you want to advance to general or do you want to do what you think is right and to um you know to try to advocate for change in an organization that you care about and again we get a lot of bad press from some sectors um saying you know, we're just publicity seekers, and, uh, you know, we're trying to make a name for ourselves, but, you know, trying to call out general officers and and basically provoke them into dialogue, like you said, is not the safe route to general officer. Um, You know, criticizing uh, aspects of the bureaucracy that some people have very high affinity for, you know, is not throughout route the general officer. So I fall back to what uh, my platoon commander, when I was at the, the basic school, um what he said to us, and that was you know people talk about dying for their country all the time, um but no one ever so, says anything about giving their career for their country so you know i'm not i 'm not out to uh commit career suicide, but I think that you know people are a little bit too uh too concerned about you know, some people are a little too concerned about their their careers, and that definitely does hurt the uh hurt the The calls for reform from within, and it's also it's a you know a carrot and a stick that's used against people who would uh, would would step out and uh, and say things. But on that note, um, yeah, I'm pretty outspoken. I have gotten very little in the way of negative feedback from the the organization. Um, Part of that is because you know maybe I'm not that well known um, and. Uh, a lot of the stuff, you know, that like even goes on in Small Wars Journal or the Marine Corps that blog doesn't necessarily get seen by um, all the parties that worked Marine Corps. But at the same time, you know, some of the stuff that people like me and Ben Coleman and others have said about the institution, if we were, you know, executives at XYZ Corporation or, you know, mid-level managers at XYZ Corporation, we said the same thing about their corporate culture, we'd be gone the next day. So there is a tolerance for... For um, dissent and, and, you know, professional discussion. Unfortunate thing is that, you know, it's sometimes just a bit of an outlet in, an, you know, and these forums become an echo chamber that don't really result in any action.
1: Let me bring back a, another topic from um, Benjamin Coleman's original article that um, I found fascinating because one of my favorite topics. We had a show uh, about a year and a half ago, with Vice Admiral Miller and Victor Davis Hanson, where we, the topic of the show was the intellectual education of military leaders. But what we really focused on was the pre commissioning, your academy guys, your um, NROTC, OCS, you know, young men and women, you know, before their mid 20s who are coming into the service, you know, what's a good way to intellectually educate them in breadth and depth to prepare them? Uh, at least intellectually, for where they're going, but one thing that Benjamin brought up and other people have written about it has been uh the insufficiency of our professional military education, whether you're talking about our war colleges or one thing that I just absolutely cannot stand the whole j p m e process but talking about you know sending people off to major institutions, civilian institutions for education to acculturate them to both the civilian world and also to let some of our civilian leaders uh, get to know uh, serving officers, uh, something I've always been a great fan of. But one thing that I've seen a lot of people have, and I want to see what your take on this, there are exceptions. I think Admiral Stavridis is an exception. I think General Mattis is an exception. I think that uh, Admiral Harvey is an exception. But there is a, a fair bit of anti-intellectualism in the military from, from two parts. One, those who just think a bunch of book learning is no good in mid-career because you ought to be doing other things like preparing PowerPoint. Yes, I'm a little cynical there. But there's also uh, one thing that, that we uh, a lot of people have run into that have had opportunities where you get the, the call in by the chief of staff or the first flag officer chain of command in your community and tells you, you don't want to do that. That's not career enhancing. You're going to blow your ride if you go do that. Do, do you see a a regular current of anti-intellectualism like that still in our military, or is that isolated in general personalities or specific personalities? I mean, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to
2: I'm going to say before I say what I'm going to say. You need to. Everyone needs to listen for the nuance that I'll say after it. But I, there is a pervasive culture of anti-intellectualism in the military, and I'll, I'll kind of get back to that. You know, so that's my tagline. I'll get back to that in a minute. But let me say, in my own experience, I'm a foreign area officer, so I went to Naval Post Graduate School, which I thought was a fantastic education. Um, you know, I really enjoyed it. I learned a tremendous amount. Uh, I didn't get to cross-pollinate with a lot of civilian, um, outside of DOD, civilian students. We did have some uh, international students, both from uniformed military and uh, departments of defense and a few other departments.
3: Um, And,
2: you know, we had outstanding um, civilian educators to include, uh, at at the time I was there, Dr. Valerie Nasser, who's a renowned uh, Iran expert, was teaching at uh, MPS at the time. So, in my experience, um, I've had had the opportunity to do some great academic, um, a great academic uh, tour, um, and, and also along with the FAO program, uh, the Marine Corps has certainly, and I think some, uh, all the services to different extents have recognized the importance of that academic, um, intellectual background and have tried to promote it again to different extents between the services. Um, there is definitely a there is, uh, I don't want to say lip service, but the, the institution is promoting the importance of education. Um, and there's different initiatives out there to try to make it better. But there's still a pervasive culture of anti-intellectualism. Um, you know, you, I'm sure most of the listeners who are associated with the, Marine, uh, the military have, have gone to some forum and heard a senior officer um I haven't heard it from general officers as much as I've heard it from more lieutenant major through colonel, uh, someone getting up in front of an audience and saying, you know, well, the military sent me to get a master's degree, but I'm still not a very smart man, and all these sort of self-denigrating things. And, you know, it is it is from a – it stems, one, from a culture where you, you you don't want to self-promote too much, but but it does stem from a sen, uh, some sense of anti-intellectualism where you almost have to excuse yourself for having done graduate education um and two and i think more importantly when we talk about incentives and how incentives um create you know value in a, in a culture you know what what's important to us uh on my fitness report as a senior major looking at lieutenant colonel right up top it has my height and weight and i you know in the marine especially in the marine corps I, it is important that you stay fit and fit the uh fit the mold of a marine officer and it has my PFT score, and again, it's important to to be able to lead from the front, but those things are right at the top of my fitness report that everybody sees um, as they start to work down towards the more substantive parts. There's nothing in there about my academic or intellectual background until you get to the very end where there's a block for PME, Um, and it's just a check block. Um, When we go to whether it's Naval Post Graduate School or command staff really it's it's almost a pass fail course and there's no real incentives given to excel at those uh, at those schools
3: um
2: and so that takes a lot of the seriousness out of our education um I haven't gone back uh, I read recently that uh Admiral Nimitz stated something to the effect of that their PME at that point in time was so rigorous that you know when they got into world war ii they had a very uh good understanding of everything from the grand strategic down to the uh tactical level based on their their very rigorous pme and so they they didn't get as many surprises as as they they might have if they didn't have that educational background now i'm not sure how much of that is uh true and what how education has changed from then to now uh, but that's something worth looking at um but but really until we incentivize you know high performance in, um, you know, in, in academic, um, I guess, you know, in our different PME schools, we're not going to get uh, the importance in the culture that we do about, you know, for instance, physical fitness. Now, I think every, everyone agrees to a certain extent that physical fitness is somewhat important, you know, depending on what role you're in, it, it has much more importance, um, you know, it's for a military, uh, you know, for a military leader. But, you know, am I more concerned about whether my battalion commander or squadron commander can run a three miles in 18 minutes or if he has the intellectual ability to manage a large organization, to lead a large organization, and to understand the
3: uh, higher-level
2: issues that, that we have to interact with? I, I'm, I'd i rather he just passed the PFT and was outstanding on the intellectual side um, as it impacted his job. Um and then finally the uh the point about cross education there was a lot of back and forth about um you know how much we interact with civilians in our education and how we could go to outside institutions um there was a lot a lot of uh, attacking the examples of business schools um and to me all of that a lot of those comments showed the basic civil military relations problem that we have where a lot of people in the military feel that we are better than the rest of society. We are better than, you know, the business school grads, et cetera. And, but we, we are so isolated in many ways that we we don't even know we we don't know what we're comparing ourselves to. And I think that would be, it would be outstanding if we could get more of a cross, uh, a cross section of uh, intellectual or, you know, of academic credentials in the military get out and see, all right, so what, what does Harvard Business School really teach? Is everyone going to be an investment banker that's, uh, you know, is, is raiding corporations or are there also people who are creating, you know, creating true wealth in America, you know, working in manufacturing or whatever coming out of Harvard Business School? Um, you know, how are different organizations attacking, you know, managerial and leadership problems uh, outside of the military? How are they addressing institutional reform? Um What sorts of crises have they dealt with, and how did they reshape the organization to deal with it? I mean these are things that you know the cross intellectual cross pollination is incredibly important to any um i think any organization any sector, and we're missing out by not doing a
4: little bit more of it. Eagle one yeah, we've got about a minute uh can you hear me? We've got about a minute left and I want to thank you for being on. And what what are you what are you working on next? And are we going to hear more about disruptive thinking? And uh what else you got planned for us?
2: Uh well in the near term, um we're gonna to try to get more disruptive thinkers uh sorts of articles up at uh Small Wars Journal and uh hopefully in the Marine Corps Gazette we'll we'll get some as well. So we're gonna keep that thread going. We, but and really the most important thing with that is dialogue, to, to have a dialogue and not a one way one way um you know podium and not only, you know, one side of the argument. Um I'd like to see nuance on both sides. Um uh also for me, uh in the next uh next couple months I'm uh, I'm getting like I said before, getting ready to, to have my next book come out. It's gonna address some of these issues, both on the military side and kind of uh, discuss, you know, what is the strategic um, environment that we're looking at for the next uh, couple decades and that'll be out in January called War Welfare and Democracy um from Potomac Books and so uh, that I'm hoping is going to going to generate some discussion that you know hopefully I'll be able to uh to really learn a lot from um and other than that it's just uh, keep grinding away down, down in Tampa and uh doing what I can in my local uh area to uh to
4: improve things
1: well, Peter, I'll tell you what, it's been a fast hour. i always tell you you've had a great show. You've been a great guest, and I really appreciate you taking time uh, this afternoon to to spend some time with us. And I, I look forward to your next book and talking to you again soon.
2: All right. Well, thank you very much, and it's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. This is my first uh, radio appearance, so so hopefully I did okay. And uh, it's definitely been very educational. It yeah, kind of showed me a few uh, holes in my thoughts, so I'll keep working. You
1: uh, we did,
4: did great, and thank, thank you, Peter.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot, Peter. And thanks to everybody who uh, joined us live or is listening to us on the archive. Uh, next week we're going to have a Father's Day Best of Show. And then on the 24th of June our guest will be Wendell Minnick. He's the Asia Bureau Chief for Defense News. And I hope everybody has a great week and a great Navy and Marine Corps day.
4: Maloney wants to marry me and so leave the strand and be cardilly.
2: don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal art.
3: I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar.
2: Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico
4: mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm
3: not even upset about anything.